Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Bar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, I hear spring break is coming up. Big plans? Um, yeah, so uh, spring break officially started for me, I would say. Well, psychologically, it started for me maybe like Wednesday of last week, where like I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I only have to teach one more class before it's spring break. It's basically spring break now. You know, what's one class? Yeah, that's the logic by which the weekend starts on Wednesday. <laughs> and if you're really skilled at, at bending logic to your will, you can sort of like extend the weekend through maybe part of Monday too. So that's the advanced move. Yeah. Um, so yeah, right now I'm on spring break. Um, so far, I haven't done too much differently. Instead of like working this morning, I try to do my taxes um, which I have not done my own taxes in the United States. So UA has this, um, international tax office that helps people from other countries do their taxes in the U S. And I think the assumption is that their, their taxes will be more complicated. Um, which I think was probably true when I first moved to the U S and maybe I like still had some Canadian income or something like that. But at this point, um, well, up until this year, I have been like a very spoiled brat who just like has my taxes done for me by somebody who does them in like five minutes. And it's like very, very easy. Um, but this year, the tax office is not responding to me. Oh, no, they're icing you out. <laughs> they ghosted me. Um, I feel like they and I feel like I um, yeah, I feel like the um, the taker in our relationship, like every year I'm like, will you? It, it feels so amazing that you're willing to help me with my taxes for nothing in return. And I, th I feel like they've just all of a sudden been like, this is too much, you know, they've caught on to it. You've been taking yeah. from us for 10 years. What are you going to do for we're us? We're not doing this for you anymore. And we're going to provide no explanation. <laughs> it is pretty cool to just drop you. I mean, I understand how they might want to get you off their books since you don't really have an international tax situation, right? No, not really. But, but, but to just drop you like that, uh, that's, that's not nice. Yeah, I know. Um, so I was trying to figure out um, how to how to do my taxes this morning. Um, so that's been my spring break so far. But later this week, I'm going to Houston, Texas. So should, that should be more fun. I was going to say maybe we should just scrap what we have planned and we can just walk through how to do your taxes, you know. <laughs> on the, on the I feel like that would be way more useful. <laughs> exactly. Maybe people could learn something. I don't know. And meanwhile, you can give me invest investing advice. I would love to do that. If that I, nothing would excite <laughs> me more. <laughs> um do you also have spring break or march break well so um i'm i'm visiting in montreal uh this year and mcgill's spring break was actually uh i think it was last week so we were in the u.s um and had a very nice time we have a spring break tradition my girlfriend and a friend and i are going somewhere where there's snow so last spring break we went to uh like uh uh, Saguenay in uh, Quebec, where there's really deep snow. Uh, and we were in the Adirondacks this year, where there was still like quite a bit of snow. So yeah, that's kind of our spring break thing is go where it's cold. Oh, cool. That that makes so much sense. Um, I'm not exactly doing that. But <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're sort of doing, I would say, a more traditional spring break. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that Houston. So I, what I wouldn't do for spring break is like go to the Alabama coast, um, which I think, or, or Florida, which I think a lot of people would do for spring break. I'm hoping that, that Houston will be like, uh, it will have the, the warm benefits of a stereotypical spring break without the annoyingness of going to a highly populated beach. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, did MTV Spring Break ever do Houston? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll check that out. <laughs> yeah, check the back catalog. <laughs> Find out where the good parties are. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, that sounds really fun. Um, so I'm glad that we're going to record this episode before you take off for your amazing vacation time. Um, I want to get to it, but I think first we need to talk about what we're drinking. Uh, I will go first. Uh, I... I will confess, I didn't sleep well last night, and beer often makes me sleep poorly, and I just want you listeners to know what I sacrifice in order to uh, to entertain you. (laughs) Um, So I really want to get a good night's sleep, and for whatever reason, if I drink whiskey, then I typically sleep fine. It's just beer in particular that makes me sleep badly. I don't know why. So are you saying that you are self-medicating yes. your uh, insomnia issues with whiskey? With whiskey. That's right. So I have some Basil Hayden bourbon, which I think I got here in Canada. You can get it, although not every place has it. Uh, so it's just a nice, like, a nice-ish bourbon, um, kind of peppery, like a little more rye than a typical bourbon normally would have. So it tastes a little, like, spicier. Cool. I'm drinking um, an Allen beer today, actually. A, a what? This is an Allen beer, a beer from our listener, Allen. Um, and this is a, a Saison, which I will admit has been in my fridge for a while um, because I typically don't like Saisons. Um, but I do trust Allen. So we're going to, I'm going to be adventurous. Are you going to crack it open on air and give a, a quick review? Totally. Well, he hasn't let me down. I would say this is quite high on my list of saisons, but there is always this like it's I think a characteristic of saisons that you can't avoid the sort of like funkiness, um, and it's like characteristic of a lot of Belgian beers too. Yeah, which is an entire class of beer that is wasted on me because I don't like that funky taste. What is a saison exactly? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Great. Maybe people can write in and tell us. Please, inform Teach us. Teach us basic, basic facts about beer, please. So, Alexa, you suggested today's topic. Can you explain a little bit about what it is and how you came up with it? Yeah. So, um, my uh, colleague and next door office person, um, Ian, suggested this topic to me. Um, so, Ian, I think, listens to the podcast quite often, um, which is very supportive and I appreciate it a lot. Um, and he suggested that he had, re- he had read this article um, written by uh, Leah Thayer, who is an APS staff writer. Um, and she wrote this article, The Grand Challenges of Psychological Science. So, essentially, um, what they did was they pulled psychological scientists, um, about what they consider to be, quote, the grand challenges, um, psychological science must address in the coming years. Um, and so from what I could tell, they asked people sort of to freeform respond and then, um, tried to sort of identify themes in people's responses. Um, and they noted that they had, um, upwards of a hundred respondents. Uh, so this is sort of like a, I guess like a snapshot of um, what some psychologists think are the biggest challenges that the field um, has to face over the coming years. And so Ian was like, well, I'm curious to see whether you agree with these challenges, whether these would be your top six, um, and maybe also like what's your take on how we should address them and stuff like that. So I thought that was a cool um, episode idea, and here we are. 
Yeah, thanks, Ian, for the suggestion. Uh, Alexa, did you get this email requesting your input about the grand challenges of psychological science? I have no idea. That sounds like something I could have easily deleted without reading. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like maybe it would go to spam. I, I don't know. I don't think I'm an APS member, come to think of it. Oh, that's probably true of me, too, actually. Okay, great. Well, so we were not invited to contribute, but none, <laughs> nonetheless, nonetheless, um, we will we will critique. Okay, so... Um, what the the writer tried to do here is to group these responses into kind of thematic areas. And I think we'll just tackle each in turn and say what we think about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, sounds good. So the first er the first challenge is globalization and diversity. And this was a weird one to me because it seemed like it combined, uh, you know, the weird problem, uh, Western educated, industrial, rich, and what's the D? Democratic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, you know, the idea that many, many psychology studies uh, used to have college undergraduates, and now they have MTurkers or prolific workers. But at any rate, these are people who don't, in any sense, represent kind of the world's population. We're trying to make these broad conclusions about human cognition and behavior based on testing a very unrepresentative group of humanity. That's that's the basic argument. And we, uh, Mickey and I had Joe Heinrich on the show a while back, and he talks about this. And this has been something that's been going on for a while, right? There's been a kind of a critique mm -hmm. that's been out there that kind of, I think, got stepped on a bit by um, the replication crisis. At least Joe felt that way. Like, they, they put out that paper around the same time, and it's people got really excited about the replication crisis and the the weird crisis, if you will, got, I guess, relatively less attention. And mm -hmm. uh, something that's still like an ongoing, I think, very fair and, and serious critique of a lot of our research is we want to draw conclusions about the way people think. And instead, we have the way undergrads think or the way prolific workers think or the way MTurkers think. Um, mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, that's I'm 100% I'm on board with that. It, I felt in this article is oddly crammed in with some sort of like more kind of like woke or SJW stuff that I, you know, I'm sort of mixed on. Uh, so uh, somebody wrote in, we need to broaden our science to facilitate a decolonization approach that recognizes and includes perspectives and contributions from people outside of weird societies. That was Carol Baldwin, uh, cognitive psychologist. I honestly not really sure what that means. I kind of hate the word decolonize. I was going to say, like, for, for the listener who can't see our um, our show notes here, underneath that quote, it says, ugh, in capital letters, decolonize. <laughs> yeah. It's um, written by you. Written by me. Yeah. So I, I don't like that word. It seems like trendy jargon. I don't know what it adds. And it's also, as I think... Your ex-co-host Sanjay has pointed out on Twitter, mildly offensive if you're like, well, my family got shot at by colonizers and you're 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 throwing this word around to say we need to put more non-white people on the syllabus or, you know, in this case, um, we need to include perspectives and contributions. I guess that means research uh, f from people outside the West. I don't know. So you, you take issue with what you see as like a trivialization of the word decolonize. So I'm also only really familiar with the use of decolonize in exactly this context, right? So like decolonize your syllabus, like decolonize your course, um, which seems in the like context in which I know the word to be like a valuable goal. Um, but I'm less familiar with like people's objections other than like I could predict that a lot of people generally don't like 
new terms that are like I guess seem jargony or or um, are always changing or something like that. Yeah. So Sanjay's critique, I, I think, if I read him correctly, is a trivialization critique. You're taking mm-hmm. a word that has you know uh, entails real violence against real people, and you're using it in this sort of trivializing way. My critique more is that it seems like trendy jargon and that this is something where you would five years ago have written diversify and now there's just a new word that's every everybody's supposed to use. And I think of this as like the social justice terminology escalator that sort of like demonstrates, you know, that you're in the know and that you're reading the right things and that you're on the right team and has like zero practical effect besides maybe alienating people who don't like trendy SJW jargon. So I, I find it to be totally unhelpful and fi- and very annoying. Uh, sorry, Carol mm. Baldwin, who I don't know. I'm sure is a lovely person, but I do not like that word. Okay. All right. So moving away from the the uh, terminology. Um, okay. So you were going to make a point about um, lumping together, I think, multiple concerns. So there's the, the question about, um, I guess, like, the generalizability of our samples and who are participants in studies. And then there's this other question about um, diversity within the field. You, do you see those as two sort of separate issues? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that there's a very valid and uh, forceful empirical critique that just says, how can you claim to be making valid conclusions about people when you're studying such a small subset of them. And then there's another kind of justice-focused, I guess, set of concerns that says we're excluding X, Y, and Z groups, and we ought to include them. I don't know that those logically have anything to do with each other. I guess like one way that they seem related to me is like, okay, so we're attempting to study um, human behavior and what people are like. And one thing that limits our understanding of that is the people who are participants in our studies. And another thing that limits our understanding of that is the people who are doing the research, which are like this very, very unrepresentative pocket of of mostly white North American, like basically the same population, probably. So basically, like it's like a small population of people who are researchers, like very small, even even worse than our samples. And we're asking like a slightly broader population of people, um, neither of which is anywhere near sort of like representative of the globe. And so like, you know, if we had more researchers from even just like continents other than North America, that we would have an entirely different picture of human behavior. Yeah, you know, I could get behind that. Um, And I think there's something to be said for the local knowledge of the populations that a researcher is interested in being really important. Um, I honestly think this argument gets made very kind of selectively and opportunistically. Like, so secular left-leaning psychologists have no trouble generalizing about conservatives or religious people without, you know, involving them. Um, And honestly, I think coming from a culture that sort of looks down on that. Um, And that doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to be at the top of anybody's list of like diversities that we need to include, right? Well, but that, but like, that's just saying like some people argue for diversity in a stupid way. I just think that you have to be really careful about, you know, who represents what group. So if you're saying we need to broaden our research to include participants from X, Y, and Z other cultures, and we need people from those cultures uh, to collaborate in this study, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I 100% think that you want local collaborators uh, or else you're just going to make bad mistakes. If you're like, 
well, you know, the black people who do social psychology, they're going to help us understand black people writ large. I think, honestly, that's a bit reductive and insulting. And I, I just, I don't like this kind of tokenization aspect or the idea that like a person of a racial group then speaks for that entire racial group. We don't speak for all white people. Minorities don't speak for all members of their group either. Yeah, right. I, I, I get like, you don't want to pick out a black psychologist and be like, hey, it's your responsibility to teach us about black people. But it's obviously problematic if you have like a field that's 95% white or something, which might be true of psychology or um, there's, uh, I'm not sure about that. I looked at the the demographics of um, SPSP recently, and it is overwhelmingly white. Um, I don't know if APS is similar, or maybe I was looking at APA. Anyways, um, yeah, there are definitely racial groups that are like highly underrepresented, even for like even if we're talking about within North America or within the United States. Um, and so it just seems like sort of ridiculous for. Um, for that group of people to be teaching the world about other groups of people. Yeah. I mean, but again, you know, we have a situation where researchers try to make generalizations about people unlike them all of the time. Right. And I agree that having a, a science that's so kind of unrepresentative of the broadly humanity that it's trying to describe, that's a problem, but I don't see a lot of principle in people's appeal to this idea of diversity means better research. Uh, so, you know, when it's a group that you would like to include anyway, for other a priori reasons, you think that's super important. When it's a group you don't like, then you're perfectly happy for our research to generalize them without giving them a seat at the table. So I guess I would be more behind this principle if I thought that it was being applied more kind of fairly and even handedly. Mm, I guess that I guess I'm not sure who you're picturing when you're saying like this is how people are making the argument for diversity. It sounds like you're talking to some some people who uh, are really annoying about it. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, Alexa. This isn't that kind of podcast. <laughs> all right, all right. But I mean, Jonathan Haidt, for example, who's made this argument a lot that you know we need more ideological diversity in social psych. I don't know that he's gotten a lot of traction with that argument, to be honest. And I think particularly during the Trump years, like like he sort of became not welcome, actually. He's like too, you know, conservative adjacent. And, you know, people say stuff about him like, oh, he's just like a right wing agitator trying to discredit us. So I think you do get pushback if you're pushing for the wrong kind of diversity. Right. OK, but. You could see how it would be annoying within a field that has like all of these diversity problems. And many of those diversity problems involve like um, ignoring or not acknowledging groups that have a lot of historical disadvantage for somebody to be like, hey, the group that we should be focusing on is conservatives, like like a historically pretty privileged group, but also like, um, yeah, perhaps even a group that that height belongs to. It just, to me, it seems like um, uh, <laughs> like a situation where, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking of a different example, and I shouldn't use this example. Um, Wait, why not? But, Is it a good example? Can you do it without the names? Yeah. So, like, imagine that you have a field that is, I mean, you could use psychology, right? A field that's slightly dominated by women at this point, and to come in and say, like, okay, well, we should be focused on you know, making sure that we get more men into the field. Um, like, I would find that really annoying as an argument for how we should diversify our field. 
um, because it's not a historically disadvantaged group in any way. We don't have any reason to think that like men have been excluded from psychology. Well, I don't know. I mean, there certainly undergraduates are like it's three like, quarters it, women, right? So it, maybe it's like a pick your battles thing, right? Like if you're going, you're going to be the champion for men in this situation. You're going to be the champion for conservatives. Like, I don't know. Like, I find that annoying. Yeah. So, so that's exactly my point, though. Like, that comes from an a priori, like, moral belief about which groups have been disadvantaged and which deserve help. But isn't he picking a group? Isn't Height picking a group? I'm not saying, like, we should ignore conservatives we sh- or we should, like, exclude them. I'm just saying, like, it's there's a reason why people find Jonathan Haidt's argument for focusing on conservatives annoying. I mean, I think a big part of his argument is that we are drawing conclusions about political beliefs and behavior all the time, and that if we do that from a perspective where uh, like more than half of the U.S. is excluded, then we're going to make mistakes, right? It's it's just an art argument about better research, right? I don't disagree with that, but I think that the annoying part, and I actually think that you and I are saying exactly the same thing, is like it's annoying when people champion one group at the expense of others or like try to prioritize well i don't know i mean i think i would argue that you should do that actually and you should consider yeah the the like historical advantage that groups have have had um but i don't think that the thing that's annoying about jonathan Haidt's argument is that he is saying it's important to include conservative perspectives i think it's that like he's like made it his mission to focus on only conservatives as a marginalized group yeah, I guess what Height would say is there's lots of people pushing for the inclusion of these other groups. And here's an important group that arguably by excluding them, we make mistakes as a field. And so he's trying to, you know, there's there's not more people needed arguing that uh, we need more non-white people in psychology, for example. That Those bases are covered. Yeah. I mean, that I think that's probably true. Okay, well, that got contentious. We have been talking, we have talked about how we agree too often, so this might be a good episode for us. Yeah, I, I, I agree <laughs> that we agree too often. <laughs> so so what was your take on this section, kind of generally? Um, I mean, I would agree. I would put this like quite high on the list of, of problems in the field or, or challenges of the field. Um, I definitely think that the uh, weird issue is a huge problem. Um, yeah, I mean, as I've sort of, already noted like i do see the diversity of samples and the diversity of researchers as like inter interconnected problems and i think both of them are pretty important to address um but i i think that um i think both are really hard problems to address perhaps the like diversity of researchers problem is even harder um so i mean this is something that we talk about a lot in our department you know how can we have a more diverse faculty. Um, and I don't want to like, um, I don't, I don't want to sort of like shrug off the responsibility of doing that. I think it is really important. It's also, you know, really hard. Um, and it's not really like that clear how to do, um, that in the best way that's going to be like really supportive of having a more diverse faculty. So, I mean, I, I think that that might be an even more challenging problem to solve than the than the weird samples part. Yeah, you know, on that, um, it, there's obviously a lot of talk about how this is a pipeline problem, how there's few people uh, 
like non-white people and particularly, you know, underrepresented groups like black people, uh, Hispanics going into social psychology in the first place. I'm just picking social psych because that's the, the one I know best. And I just want to call mm-hmm. out, you know, at U of T, uh, Liz Page Gould, former guest, former two-time guest, I want to say, has really been instrumental in spearheading this um, summer program for undergraduates. Uh, it, there's other people involved too, but I think of her as the one in charge of it. And basically what that tries to do is to take underrepresented minority undergrads, pair them with advisors, faculty advisors, and have them do research over the summer, hopefully then kind of nudging those people towards grad school. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's been like a couple years that she's been doing this, maybe one. And it's already seems like it's really successful, at, at least as far as like getting these folks to consider applying to grad programs. So I, you know, I mean, I, I get you that it is, it's, it's a long process, but I do think like we could do more than we've historically been doing, which is not much, right? Like we really haven't been trying to solve this at the like, why do people not choose to go to graduate school in this stage? And I think that's a great place to intervene. Like undergrads are malleable. And if you nudge them in the right direction, then they may decide to pursue a career in this. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that's true. Um, well, that's cool. Um, should we go on to the second challenge? Yeah. So this is sort of, this is sort of well-trodden ground for us. Uh, this is research yeah. integrity. And so it's basically like P hacking, but also measurement stuff and some other things. Uh, so I'll just read a few of these quotes that I thought were nice. Uh, one from uh, Pam Davis Keene of the University of Michigan, who writes, it is not clear to me that psychology can continue to call itself a science when most of those practicing it do not know the fundamental methods or statistics of the field I feel personally accused. That's my interjection. <laughs> uh, when the story outweighs any evidence, then we are just philosophy and squarely in the humanities. Just philosophy, that's kind of harsh. We will continue to be challenged with poor training in methods and statistics, poor theory, unvalidated measures, tenure incentive being stronger than scientific integrity in an aging field that values big names more than rigorous science Oof. yeah you tell them pam i sign on Scathing. to all that yeah uh-huh yep um yep i wouldn't disagree with with much of that um and as you say we've sort of we sort of address these kinds of issues often um but yeah i mean one thing that com- comes up in this uh section on research integrity that maybe well maybe historically hasn't gotten as much focus although i think this has been changing is um i think we started the replicability crisis by um worrying mostly about stats and things like p hacking um and then gradually have become more concerned with things like um validity and theory or at least like the theory the connection between theory and data or the claims that we're trying to make and the data that we collect um which is something that we obviously talked about with um Julia a couple of weeks ago um so i guess that might be um yeah i don't know like uh the direction i guess or the emphasis that has become more common now in the replicability movement um but yeah, I also noticed in this section um, a comment written by APS fellow Carol Tavris, um, who is a social psychologist in Los Angeles, California. She says, um, at its best, science has been able to overturn or at least slow pernicious fads, for example, recovered memory therapy and benign but wrong theories, um, for example, that women reason in a different voice. 
Today, I fear that the greatest challenge for psychological science is maintaining our emphasis on science, even when its findings question the current ideologies of race, gender, and social justice. Um, so yeah, uh, just to like, keep the, um, keep the contentiousness going. What do you think of that statement, Yoel? Yeah, no, I think it's funny that in the above section, people were like, we need to be more woke. And now in this section, Carol Tavis is like, well, we're, we're too woke. Um, so this quote continues as an example, Tavis wrote that scientific evidence and quote unquote rigor are increasingly seen as the villains in the war against racism. If research doesn't show what we want it to, it must be racist where they're being silenced and its promoters shunned. This is a tragically misguided belief. I hope that APS will hold the line for competent peer reviewed research and debate. Um, I think that this is, uh, more or less inevitable when you have a field that all agrees on what the politically correct opinions are. It's just very hard to take the line that disagrees with that politically correct opinion. And unfortunately, no group has like a monopoly on truth and some stuff is going to be wrong and some facts are going to be ideologically uncomfortable for uh, most social psychologists. And I think that the more we're this monoculture ideologically, the harder it gets to do research that kind of pushes ideological buttons and the more you get punished for doing it and the worse off the field is. So I think Carol has a point. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, not surprisingly, like, I think that this comment rubbed me the wrong way. And so, I don't know. I mean, so like you said, Carol notes that, um, when when we as a field face research that tells us something we don't want to hear, um, she says that we conclude that it must be racist, um, worthy of being silenced and its promoters shunned. So, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of an unfair question, but can you think of examples of this? So like research that was um, like really meaningful or that, that deserved a lot of attention um, that, that got shunned um, for being racist or, or, or silenced? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there was uh, a paper that came out a couple years ago, and I, I hope I'm not misremembering the journal. I want to say it was Nature Communications. This was the uh, Women Mentors paper. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, I do. And I listened to your podcast episode about it. Oh, I forgot that we podcasted. It. Oh, we did podcast about it. So I'll I'll just refer people to that episode if they want the deep dive. <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, this was a team of people coming out of uh, the Middle East. Uh, and ha- most of the team was women, actually. It was not obvious from the names uh, because they were not, you know, Anglo names. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that had a big a lot to do with it. Uh, so one of the mm-hmm. findings, I don't think it was actually the main finding of the paper, um, was that people who collaborated with more uh, women uh, as early career researchers uh, then did worse on some outcome measure. I forget what that was exactly, uh, later H index or something. And and people were absolutely outraged by this. And there was um, a social media movement to get this paper retracted and they succeeded. And I think it was straight mm-hmm. BS. I, I think that there were things to criticize about the methods of the study, but I n- in no way think that they warranted retraction. And it was just 100% that th- it offended some people. So I think this is a perfect example of what Carol is talking about. This conclusion, right or wrong, I mean, maybe the conclusion 
was incorrect, uh, but it mm-hmm. offended people. And it offended people so much they wanted the paper retracted, right? It wasn't do your own research. It wasn't write a response. It was this paper has to go because I find it offensive. Okay. So, like, I'm inclined to agree with you in this specific example, but my only knowledge of this paper comes from your podcast episode. So, um, so maybe I have a skewed understanding. Um, but uh, one one thing that I sort of struggle with is that I feel like the implication here is um, we should be striving to have this uh, science that is politically neutral or something like that. Um, or we should remove politics from from our research or our research should be value free or something like that. Um, and that these values are like seeping into our research and poisoning it or something like that. And I don't really buy that. So first of all, I don't, I don't think that it's like possible for science to be value free. And I think that when people are picturing a science that's value free, they're just picturing a science that's more in line with their own values. So perhaps like somebody who's more moderate is hoping for, you know, greater representation on both sides and somebody who's conservative wants it to shift in the conservative direction. Um, and, and these, I think connect back to, Um, the problem of having a really undiverse field of researchers because um, when you just like don't have people even sort of considering questions that would be out of line with the sort of status quo within the field, um, then you have, yeah, no way of sort of discovering things that you had never considered before. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would flip that around and say, look, in this example of the retracted paper, what we had was a group of researchers who aren't what you normally see in um, Mm -hmm. the behavioral sciences. And they, perhaps because they were not American, didn't realize what a tripwire this was going to be. They put things maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit inartfully. And so, like, kind of the mass of uh social psychologist not only but you know in large part you know freaked out and wanted this thing gone right so this is a perfect example of like we have a certain group of people who all think the same and when they run into something that kind of they find morally offensive they're like this has no place here kick it out um i also think that of course you know we always bring our values to our work but I think one really important value is at least trying to play it straight. That is, I'm going to follow the data. Um, I'm going to uh, try as much as I can to keep my own personal kind of political and moral preferences out of the work. And I'm going to try to observe and describe in as unbiased a way as I can. And I think that is an important norm. Um, and if we decide that we're just activists, that we're our job is to generate, quote unquote, evidence in favor of what we believe to be morally or politically correct, uh, then there's no reason that anybody who doesn't already agree with us should listen to us. And I think we lose something really valuable there. I think the power to persuade people who don't already share our views, which let's keep in mind, we are well to the left of not just the median American, but like the median Democratic voter. 
I mean, social psychologists and academics more generally are. We're a pretty rarefied group. And sorry mm-hmm. for the US centric here, but it's just like the culture that I know best. And so if we decide that we want to push our own ideological agenda, like not only is it bad for science, it's also ineffective because most people don't agree with us. So they're just going to write us off. So I think we have to like in our work, attempt to take a position that is more neutral, that sets aside what we believe kind of morally and politically and attempts to look at things in a less biased way. And I don't think we're ever going to be successful, but it's the aspiration that's important. Do you think it's possible for somebody to conduct a research study and follow the data and be sort of like, um, I guess, uh uncolorful in their interpretation and, you know, just like talk about the numbers, but find basically strategically find something that's going to support exactly what they wanted to say. And then they have this like added credibility of like that they did this in an objective scientific way in order to back that claim. So I feel like that's kind of thing has been pretty common in the history of science and that kind of thing really freaks me out. Like, like using IQ testing to talk, I, maybe this is a cheap example, but like using IQ testing to talk about the superiority of one group over the other, right? Like people talked about how this is like objective, you know, I mean, we're just talking about the numbers here and that's fucked up. Yeah. I think it's a very human thing um, to think that you're being objective when you're just confirming your biases. And I think that's why we need a diversity of views within the field so that when somebody is doing that, there are people who do not share those biases who are motivated to poke holes. So I don't, I don't think like science requires individuals to be unbiased. It requires the field as a whole uh, to cancel out individual biases. Right, right. I do think it's helpful if people try. I guess maybe that's the difference, right? Like I, I we're we're on the same page as far as like you're biased and it is going to affect the conclusions that you draw even when you're doing your best to be not biased. Uh-huh. But I think the aspiration is useful and I think throwing that overboard and saying, "Well, I'm just doing advocacy" is bad. The, I think I think that I agree. So I do think that some people there are people who would prefer to be advocates in some of these domains. And I think they should be advocates. I do think there's something pretty dangerous in combining the like this like privileged status that we give to scientific investigation with the motivations of advocacy. Um, but I don't know. I have complicated feelings about that. I don't. I see what you're saying. Like you, you can't like. Um, be claiming to be a scientist, but then uh, your motivations be that of an advocate. Yeah, I, I think that's a very succinct way of saying what I'm what I'm thinking. And you know, I think ultimately it undermines us as a field. Um, and arguably, you know, we're there already, and the ship has sailed. But I like to think that there is convincible people who are open minded uh, who would be turned off by a field that it explicitly devotes itself to advocacy. Because I think very reasonably, you could say, why should I trust anything those people say? All they're trying to do is to prove an ideological point, And they're wrapping that up in the mantle of like scientific empiricism, but it's bullshit. It's the conclusions were preordained. They knew what they wanted to find. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Cool. Um, 
how's your beer situation? I've just been pouring myself more whiskey continuously, which is why I'm getting so rambunctious. But how are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm ready for my second beer. So should we take a break? The bells will ring. Church steeples, kitchen fire. And if you promise spring, then I know you are a liar. In the spring, tender grasses won't burn easily. The thrushes sing, still, my lover won't return to me. Wild parsnips, they still scald my lungs while thistles burn my feet. If you join our cause, you will never fear anymore. So here comes the cold. We will meet on a face. Welcome back. We're sponsored again this week by Finding Five. Finding Five is a web platform where academic researchers can create and run online behavioral research studies in the cloud. Their website is www.findingfive, that's spelled out, uh, .com. So, Alexa, you're making a face that suggests you're thinking, look, there's already software where I can make surveys and uh, send people to them. Why would I want to switch to something else? Right. So, like, why aren't we just using Qualtrics for this? Yeah, or SurveyMonkey or Google Forms or whatever. Like, why why, why learn something else? Sure. So, yeah. Have you ever tried to do um, an IAT in Qualtrics, Yoel? I haven't. It was, it was a terrible experience. <laughs> yeah. So, when I was um, playing around with Finding Five, that was sort of the thing that, that stuck out to me, was that if you're trying to do um, studies online that uh, maybe are more sort of like cognitive studies or social cognition studies where the timing is important or you have like complex, you know, sort of randomization schemes or things like that, um, that sometimes it's tricky to do those within like traditional um, survey softwares like SurveyMonkey um, or Qualtrics. And that's kind of what uh, Finding Five is, um, seems to be best at to me. Yeah. So these are, you could call them stimulus presentation kind of studies uh, where you want a lot of trials and you want to vary some aspects of them from trial to trial. And that's where I think Finding Five really uh, shines. Uh, they have, they've developed their own kind of language for develop, for making these studies that's accessible to non-programmers. They call that the study grammar. Um, and uh, they try to make that as easy as possible for people. If you're interested in this, uh, you can go check out their website and create studies absolutely free. There is no feature restrictions at all. Uh, the only thing that they'll charge you for um, is data collection, and those rates are pretty low because they're a nonprofit. So really, they're just charging in order to keep the lights on, not in order uh, to make money. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, I encourage you guys to go to the website, www.finding5.com, check it out, play around with it. Uh, if it seems like something you can use, uh, there's a promo code that'll get you a complimentary one month pro subscription uh, that comes with a hundred free participants for that monthly cycle. The best way to do that is to kind of mess around with it. Once you're ready to collect data, go ahead and redeem the promo code and get that free month. Uh, so that code, if you're in the US is FF dash US dash 
2P4B. If you're in the EU, it's FF-EU-2P4B. Uh, those uh, codes and the links uh, to Finding Five's websites will be in the show notes. So thanks so much to Finding Five for sponsoring this episode. Alexa, what is your beer number two? It's a good thing that Mickey's not here for this because he would judge me and you might judge me too. So it's not technically a beer. It's a Vista Bay hard seltzer, black cherry flavored. Oh boy. I, you know, I don't, who am I to judge? I go off drinking script all the time. I would be a huge hypocrite for judging you for your weird choice of beverage, but I don't know. I mean, going off script for whiskey is different than going off script for hard seltzer. But a friend of mine loved this at my house the other day. And I don't know. I'm curious. <laughs> you know, your seltzer curious. I get it. <laughs> can, we, can we have a review? Will you crack it open right now? Yeah. Are you ready to hear about this? I'm ready. I would say, so I've had quite a few hard seltzers. Um, and I would say that this is pretty good. So the black cherry flavor is, is strong. Um, and I think that the biggest thing that distinguishes good hard seltzer for bad hard seltzer is like the taste of artificial sweetener. Um, and this one doesn't taste too like aspartame Um, so I like it. Does it in fact have artificial sweetener in it or does it just have sweetener sweetener? Um, I don't know. It has a hundred calories. Um, there is some cane sugar. Uh, I don't, it doesn't look like it has, um, artificial sweetener in it so maybe that's maybe that's why it doesn't taste like artificial sweetener <laughs> that would make sense all right well done um yeah i'm i'm still drinking the same bourbon i'm being boring and just refilling as we go along so cheers mm. uh one last thing before we get back to content uh if you're enjoying the show please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Just helps other people find us. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a line, the uh, show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, another way to get in touch with us is on Twitter, where the show's account is at fourbeerspod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there, and you can drop us a line there as well if you like. And now back to our topic. So we had a little bit of controversy before the break. Um, I think it's safe to say, I think that the next section is going to be a little less controversial, but let's see. You never know. Alexa, you want to take it over? Yeah. So our next topic is collaboration, which, you know, presumably it's hard to argue against collaboration. So, so the, I guess the, um, this as a theme in terms of uh, presenting a challenge to psychological science is, uh, I guess, that we're not collaborating enough right now as a field. Um, so, I guess a lot of, a lot of the questions that we have um, and the kinds of projects that we try to take on are ones that require a lot of resources um, to answer well. Um, and this, I think, again, connects to you know wanting more. Um, more diverse samples, right? When you have hard to reach populations, um, then it's hard to get enough participants. Um, but ideally we want both a lot of participants and these hard to reach samples. Um, and so these kinds of, um, ambitious goals, I think can only be sort of attained through collaboration. Um, so this, this point suggests that we need to both encourage collaboration more and find ways of doing it, um, but also change incentives around um, collaboration. So we have um, 
a quote from Men in Ironside um, at UC Berkeley who says we need more centralization, more collaboration, less of a model that elevates the authority of individual researchers and promotes individual achievement. It is likely that in order for meaningful change to take place in this domain, the incentive structure around publication would need to shift. Um, so this kind of, I think, suggests that right now what we reward is individual accomplishments, right? And this was like when I was in grad school, um, there was sort of this idea that as a social psychologist, if you want to make a name for yourself, you have to come up with your own theory, right? Um, and you're supposed to be like doing studies, you know, that are testing your own theory. Basically, the incentive is to like in, um, go out on your own and discover something totally new rather than teaming up with other people um, and potentially like not getting the limelight or the glory for yourself. And so I think this is what Manon is um, maybe referring to is that right now um, we reward individual co accomplishment more than being sort of like a cog in a big wheel. Yeah. I mean, I think this is extremely well put and a great point and I agree with hundred percent of it. Um, so when we think about the studies that have been kind of most informative, um, have most helped us to update our knowledge uh, about psychology, I think many of them is, have been these big collaborations where lots of people team up to collect data. Just uh, It's too big uh, a task to have one lab solely responsible, so people have to collaborate. And I, I think that you know we recognize how useful those studies are, but still we are kind of when we're allocating credit um deciding who to hire or who to tenure and so on those contributions they they can be undervalued um and i've even heard it mm -hmm. said about people who organize these big projects oh all they do is you know do the organizing that's just like bookkeeping that's not interesting i think that's a really bad oh my attitude. god that's insane I, yeah i'm not, i'm not going to throw any individuals under the bus but that is i have heard that said so yeah, I, I think that's ridiculous and it needs to change. And I think that this comment um, really illustrates how I feel. I, I There is nothing for me to disagree with here. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, have you ever been involved in like a big collaborative project? I've been a data collector on them. Um, so it, it's just, uh, you know, running a thing. Um I there was I'm I'm second author on something with Josh Tiber where we coordinated with a bunch of labs and Josh did most of the actual coordination but I helped a bit and it was a huge pain it was it was <laughs> so much work yeah it sounds like I mean to me if I saw that somebody was a first author or one of the sort of lead authors on one of these like big big team science papers or something with multiple labs involved. I would consider that worth like multiple papers. Like I, th that must be an insane amount of work. Um, but yeah, I've also been like a data collector for bigger projects and that is, um, is in my experience, very little work. Um, although that, I guess that could vary from project to project. Um, I'm curious, Noel, do you know, like when you're a data collector or even like on this project that you were, um, more of a lead author on, do you know how your like institution, how U of T views those kinds of publications? Yeah. So I, I think unfortunately second author, which was what I was on the big one doesn't get you much. Um, they want first or last, which also discourages collaboration, obviously. Um, and the, the data collection thing, I mean, it's a line on my CV. I think I get the minimal amount of credit for being on a paper, but not any more than that, which I think when you're a data collector is about right. Like you don't 
deserve a ton yeah, of credit. I think so too. Yeah. I think it's more people who work on infrastructure and coordination. That stuff is hugely valuable. It's hard to do and it ought to be more rewarded. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, all right. So we're both pro collaboration, I guess. Pro collaboration. Um, the next topic, uh, this is a fun one. This climate change. How do you feel about climate change? <laughs> How do I feel about climate change? Um, well, so this was like not something that I expected to necessarily come up on a um, challenges for um, for psychology per se. Um, I guess that this is on here because uh, it's a challenge for the world, and psychologists are are members of the world, um, or it's like a it's a challenge facing. Um, facing our current society. And so to the extent that psychology as a field has some role in doing research that helps us to address big societal problems, perhaps that's why climate change is on there. Um, or maybe people brought up climate change because they're like, psychologists are always flying to conferences, you know? <laughs> yeah, a little, a uh, little self-awareness there, please. I mean, I, I think that this article just collates what people said. And a lot of people said climate change. I think this is a weird one to be on there, to be honest. Um, I, I think that this, you know, if you're talking about the warped perspective of um, having a very specific group of people involved in the field, this is a great reflection of that. It turns out uh, affluent, educated Westerners care a lot about climate change. That's the group that cares most about climate change. And that's us. And so we wrote a lot about it. Is it the biggest problem facing humanity? Uh, eh, you know, maybe it's bad. I guess, probably. Is it worse than malnutrition, endemic disease, the threat of nuclear war? I don't know. That depends on your perspective. And I, I guess you can make an empirical fact, uh, an empirical case that these other things are actually a greater threat to human welfare and happiness. Uh, I don't know. So I, I think this just reflects who we are as a, as a group. I didn't know this, what you, so what you said about um, climate change being an issue that mostly like affluent Westerners care about. So this, this might not be inconsistent with what you're saying, um, but we had um, Neil Lewis Jr. come and give a talk at UA recently, who you've also had on the podcast. Um, and he was talking about work that I think this may have been within the context of North America. So like I said, maybe not inconsistent with what you're saying, but, but he said that people, if you ask people to like picture somebody who's like an environmentalist or who cares a lot about climate change, they picture white women. Um, but if you pull people, the people who express most concern are, um, people of color. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like, again, I guess it matters what the community is, but I was kind of surprised by that because my stereotype, um, is definitely like, if you, if you were like, Oh, this is a, um, I don't know, an environmental advocate, that's probably, I, I would probably picture a white woman first. Um, but Neil Lewis Jr. was making the point that um, sometimes the like, communities that are most affected by these changes um, are uh, communities of color, at least in his the samples that he was talking about. Yeah, so I think you need to be careful interpreting people's responses to those sorts of polling questions. So Americans across the board will say uh, climate change is a serious problem and they care about it a lot, right? And then you ask them, how much are you willing to spend to mitigate it? You know, give us a dollar amount per year. And it's like, I don't remember the exact figure, but it's low. 
it's like in the hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. So they even, and and that is just cheap talk, right? (laughs) Nobody's being asked to write a check. Um, So I think this is an issue that many people will claim to care about, but then, you know, in their actions, don't particularly. Um, And that the, the, movement on climate change is coming from elites. So in the US, it's it's mostly the Democratic Party, but also um, investors and big business. So environmental, social governance investing is huge. Um, like giant uh, fund managers have decided they really care about climate change. They're going to push companies that they hold uh, shares in uh, to do more uh, about climate change, uh, to more quickly get to like a, a, a net zero. Um, they've pushed companies like Exxon, for example, uh, to get out of fossil fuels more quickly. So it's something that I feel is really coming from the from the top down. And in, in not the US, that's pretty bipartisan. So elites across the board are think climate change is really important. People regular people are mad when the price of gas goes up. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that makes them right or anything. Like, it might be the elites are totally uh-huh. right. I'm just saying that if you're, if you're going to pick the group that's most concerned and most doing stuff, I, I would say it's the people with, with more social power rather than less. Mm, interesting. What about companies like Exxon? Like, those are companies with a lot of power who are like... They're, they're under a ton of pressure. Um, to minimize pressure, though they're not they're not like advocating for for regulation. Well, so for example, Exxon, there was um, a successful campaign to replace some of their board members with people who would push for quicker decarbonization, right? So they're coming under real pressure. Like the the board of the company gets to decide, gets to set strategy, gets to tell the CEO what to do. They're coming under real pressure to get out of fossil fuels more quickly, right? But they're they're powerful companies that are pushing against those kinds of pressures. Like they're they're only being they're only giving into those things because there's overwhelming pressure. Right. If you're the CEO of Exxon, you're like an oil dude. I don't know actually who the CEO of Exxon is, but I'm assuming <laughs> he's an oil dude who wants to drill for for oil, right? But then mm-hmm. if you're like who are your major shareholders? It's often um big fund managers who really care a lot about the environment and who are really going to push those companies to do more. And they're going to do so, uh, you know, at maybe at the cost of seeing the value of those specific companies go down and they're okay with that. So if you're like a big diversified investor, you're like, yeah, it's worth it if Exxon's worth a little less and we don't all drown, you know, we come out ahead is, is the thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, that's the kind of like cold capitalist case for, for ESG investing, right? That this is actually going to be a value maximizing strategy in the long run. And a lot of people have bought into this and there's big money behind it, right? So all I'm saying is that it's not this, this idea that, you know, there is a kind of lack of support for doing something about the climate among kind of powerful people. I just don't think that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that can be true. Um, do you think that uh, psychology has something to say about climate change? Absolutely not. I don't know how we would. I mean, so you could say like, well, we need to persuade people of things. And psychology, arguably, perhaps can tell us how to persuade people of things. But then persuade people of what? What are we going to try and get them to do? Like, do we want them to buy smaller cars? Do we want them to recycle their plastic bottles? Do we want them to support nuclear power? I don't know. I mean, and they're like, we're kind of useless. And I think a lot depends on what are we going to try and persuade people to do? I would be a little 
I would be pretty impressed if psychologists had a lot to offer to, I guess, like politicians and journalists and the people who I see as like participating the most in these conversations about persuasion. I think that, um, I think that persuasion is kind of like that group's area of expertise. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm, I'm with you that, that climate change might not be, it might not be fruitful to make that psychology is one of psychology's top priorities. Honestly, I'm a little less pessimistic than you about, you know, that we might have interesting things to say about persuasion. Um, I think that's an area that, you know, we've studied a lot where I trust the research more than lots of other areas and where perhaps we could make a good contribution. But then it's the question of like, what are we going to try and persuade people to do? And I, I don't know that without knowing kind of the facts of, well, how is this actually going to affect climate change? Like whatever policy we're going to try and persuade people support to support or action we're going to try and persuade them to do. I'm kind of uncomfortable saying like, well, you know, we just need to persuade them to do something. Like we could be persuading them to do something counterproductive or focusing them on the wrong things or whatever. Like, I, I just feel like it's so far out of our domain of expertise that it gets a little dangerous. You don't think that there's like any clear sort of like guidance for ways that we could either combat climate change or uh, decrease the threat of climate change. Like I think that, I think that there are some authors who would argue that that path is, or there's like really, really clear actions that we could take. I mean, you know, broadly reduce carbon emissions, but what's the best way to do that? So for example, a lot of this stuff is individual focused, take shorter showers, buy a more fuel efficient car, et cetera, et cetera. But then lots of people argue, yeah, well, that that's misguided. We shouldn't be thinking about that at all. What we should be thinking about is kind of policy choices that- Right. Yeah. If psychology were to play a role in persuasion in a meaningful way, I feel like it would- if psychology has some insight about how to persuade people, um, they would talk to people who are experts on climate change and then push for policy, right, that would combat climate change. Like, that doesn't seem – well, other than, like, I'm not so sure about the the persuasion expertise, like, that doesn't seem – that seems straightforward to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's fair to say, look, there's some things that are just totally un- uncontroversial and we should just do them. Um, I'm open to that. I actually don't know what those totally uncontroversial things would be. Uh, but, uh, I don't, yeah, <laughs> so we're, we're woefully underinformed, which is why psychologists shouldn't be weighing in on climate change. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Do we want to tackle science communication? I think this will be a quick one. Well, this seems connected. I mean, it does actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, the the science communication point is I think that um, we need to be a, doing a better job of communicating our findings to the public. Um, perhaps we should be concerned that there is a growing distrust of expertise. Um, although some of that I think is, I know a lot of people have written about this. My understanding is that distrust, the distrust of science is not necessarily decreasing, um, but I do. I do think there's a lot of discussion about distrust of expertise or maybe increasing reliance on non-experts for as sources of information. Um, I mean, my stance on this is that 
um, that the replicability piece should should come before the science communication piece. Um, so we should we should earn the trust of the public before we start trying to convince them that they should trust us, I guess. Yeah, I agree. So perhaps you could make the case that for other scientific fields that people trust too little. Um, for psychology, I would say, if anything, people are overly credulous of our results mm -hmm. and we, we would like them to trust us less. Uh -huh. yeah. If ABS had asked me, I, I would say that's the primary challenge facing the field. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, last section. I think this is a good one. Um, so basically theory, uh, under theorizing and theoretical development. And I'm actually very curious what you think of this. Uh, basically, this section just quotes uh, Iko Freed at length. Um, but but mm -hmm. it, it's it's good uh, what he has to say. Uh, so I'll just I'll just read a relevant section. Uh, so he writes: mm -hmm. psychological theories are often weak theories, narrative descriptions that do not allow us to precisely deduce how data would look if the theory was true. This makes it difficult to decide in many psychological studies whether data actually support a theory or not. Often, we simply have to take the theorist's word for it. To that, I would add, then there's people who have their competing theory who are going to say, no, of course, these data don't support the theory, and then you're sort of stuck. Okay, continuing the quote. To address both of these challenges, Fried advised, drawing on the rich disciplines of cognitive and mathematical psychology and other areas outside of psychology, which feature strong theories, precise axioms or assumptions aiming to explain phenomena. Such theories can be represented via mathematical notation as formal theories with several advantages. For one, the theory and all its auxiliary assumptions are now spelled out clearly and unambiguously. The theory, not its theorist, makes predictions via simulations. Further, formal theories are interdisciplinary, enabling collaborations. Going back to the collaboration section. Alexa, what do you make of that? I have a few reactions. So um, I want to say I agree with everything that Fried says, except that there are some parts that I don't fully understand. Um, so like this idea of representing things mathematically and then having um, the mathematical theory make predictions and things like that, that sounds sounds plausible and, and good to me, but I don't really know how to picture this. Um, I think, so one way in which the theory is sometimes, the word theory is sometimes used in social psychology is like uh, to refer to things that people have said in the past that have been cited many times. Um, and like, uh, I don't, I don't think that that's what Freed is talking about. Um, and I don't think that we really need more of that in psychology. So, so I think it's totally fine to do a psychology study where you just like have an idea. It's based on your intuition or like something that you and your friend talked about. Um, and you want to test it in a study and there's no like theoretical, basis for your prediction, right? So it's not that like you're basing it on so-and-so's theory of social interactions or so-and-so's theory of persuasion or whatever. You're just like, you just have uh, an intuition or you've made an observation and you want to do a test of it. Um, I think that should be totally fine and encouraged. Um, but I think what, what Fried is emphasizing here and what I can get behind is sort of like being precise about the question that you're trying to answer and the claims that you're trying to make. And this is something that I end up asking a lot in like thesis defenses and dissertation defenses, like when, or actually really more thesis proposals or dissertation proposals, like um, what will the data look like if your hypotheses are 
um, confirmed? Um, what would disprove your hypotheses? That kind of thing. Um, and I don't think we're always in the habit of sort of like fully spelling out all the possible outcomes of a study and thinking about what they would mean. Um, and also there's just like a lot of imprecision between the, the, the questions that we're asking and the claims that we're making and like the data that we're collecting, um, and the stats that we're doing. So tightening those connections, making sure that we're only making claims that are sort of fairly justified by the data, spelling out our auxiliary, auxiliary assumptions, things like that. I think those things are really important. Um, and I would agree that they, that's a big challenge, uh, very related to the challenge of sort of, um, I guess, generalizability, um, which maybe is sort of touched on earlier. Yeah. What do you think? So I think what you're describing is making verbal theories better, like being mm -hmm. clearer about specifying them, uh, being more upfront about what patterns of data would support or disconfirm. I think what Fried is talking about is something beyond that, which is this mathematical mm -hmm. formalism, right? Like having a formal model that says, you know, if my theory is right, this parameter of the model should be in this range. Or if we change this thing, that should change these parameters thusly. And I would love it if we were at a point where that was possible for a lot of the questions that we study. I'm a fan of this sort of work, but whenever I've seen people present these sorts of formal mathematical models, it's been for from a paradigm that's really abstract. So it'll, you know, they'll they'll make, you know, repeated choices in some sort of like hypothetical choice paradigm of do you want this? Do you want to eat this food or have this amount of money? Um, and then, so I'm thinking of work that my colleague at UTSC, Sandri Hutcherson, has done. You, know, you can have a, a theoretically specified model of like how people make decisions, um, let's say decisions between options. And you can look at their reaction times and what they ultimately choose and say, how well do those observed data fit the model. Then you still have to take that step of going from that kind of artificial paradigm to the thing that you actually care about, which might be, you know, why do people have trouble saying no to cake? And there's a big gap mm -hmm. there. Like the mathematical formalism right. is great for the data from the paradigm, but the data, the paradigm isn't the thing that we actually care about. And so I, I think uh -huh. that's the problem is like formalizing the stuff that we care about just seems really hard. Right. I feel like we've talked about this a little bit before. So if we, if we move the claims or the questions closer to the kinds of data that we collect, um, then they become like mundane and boring or something like that. And if we're, if we're able to be, Oh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes these, calls for stronger theory look like, you know, yeah, we should be able to predict exactly how this interaction is going to look or what the, you know, what the parameter size will be within some small range. And that seems totally unrealistic to me, which I think we've, we've also talked about before. So, you know, a, a pretty good proportion of the time, we don't even know, we're not even confident what the direction of, 
a main effect will be. And so these sort of more complicated predictions seem unrealistic. So yeah, I mean, maybe I would, maybe I would be skeptical then of the idea that we can address the questions that we care about in these really, really formalized ways. But I do agree that there's the, the fundamental problem is the gap between the two. Um, and then it's a question of sort of like, which do you move the um, data to be closer to the kinds of claims that we want to make, um, which is uh, hard work? Um, or do we go the other direction, which maybe means that we're doing really boring stuff? I, I think that's exactly right. So we're we're still faced with the the same problem of the behavior that we ultimately care about is really hard to study. And it's particularly hard to study with kind of rigorous mathematical formalism. So, you know, the, the stuff that I know best, like, you know, you might do some model of uh, how people respond to different types of gambles where you have like X percent chance of winning Y dollars, right? And you do repeated trials of that and you derive some parameters about, for example, how risk averse are they across those different gambles. But then like, ideally what you would want is for those, you know, risk aversion numbers to predict other stuff that they actually like, are they more willing to try heroin or whatever? And, mm -hmm. and it's been shown that people's kind of risk tolerance is really domain specific. So LK Weber is one of the people who's done this work. It's like very hard to generalize. And so you have this like, you know, kind of artificial paradigm and you have a mathematical model and that all works great. But then when you're like, okay, let's take this and predict like some real world behavior we care about. It's like, no, nah, well, that actually kind of falls flat. So then we're stuck again, you know, like not, not being able to build a rigorous model of the behavior that we really are trying to explain. Right. Um, that one's a tricky one. That is a tricky one. Sorry, Aiko. I'm not convinced. I don't know if you feel like we've um, addressed the, the six, but I'm curious for you to go through the six quickly and say whether you think that we will make substantial progress on these challenges, let's say within the next, I don't know, 20 years or something. Yes. Okay. Globalization and diversity. Um, I have moderate confidence that we will make progress. Research integrity, high confidence that we will make progress. That's something people care about a lot. Uh, collaboration, reasonably high confidence, um, just because technology is making this stuff so much easier. Climate change, I honestly have no idea. Um, science communication, I'm going to give us a no on that in that I think that we're already overrated. Theory, um, I have low confidence that we're going to develop formalized mathematical models of the kinds of behaviors that are kind of the bread and butter of social psychology, like the kind of real world impactful behaviors that we really want to explain. Okay. What are your takes? Um, my takes, globalization and diversity, um, I really... I really want to say, yes, I think that we'll make progress and it'll be pretty minor is my answer. Um, research integrity, I think, yes. Collaboration, I think, yes. Climate change, I think, no. 
yeah, science communication. Um, it's possible that there will be more of it, but I don't think that I would see that as a necessarily a, a plus, especially if some of the other stuff doesn't happen first. Um, theory, I think, no, I think that's a, it's a, that to me is like a very daunting challenge. I feel like despite all the prior arguing, we're now agreeing again. <laughs> we just can't help ourselves. Yep. It's just the inevitable um, middle of the pendulum, I guess. <laughs>